0: All right, folks, thanks for joining us. Those of you that are online, you can't see uh, necessarily the room. I think you guys are just looking at me, Uh, but we have a a good crowd here in the room. I'm gonna try my best to address people in the room and people online. We've had this question come up already. um, And so I want to address it quickly for those of you that are joining us, whether you're on Facebook or you're on our church streaming platform or you're on YouTube. Uh, We are looking for a way to be able to make this somewhat interactive for you. Um, I typically teach uh, Wednesday night equipped classes, whether I'm teaching my doctrine class when we're in smaller groups or I'm teaching on a specific subject uh, to the whole church in the fellowship hall. Uh, I, I like to do those interactive. I like to do those where you have opening discussion and closing discussion questions and where you're able to ask, ask me questions and be able to deal with the subject. It's going to be much more difficult for us to do that in this room uh, with those that are present and certainly with those of you uh, who are uh, distant from us but are still watching. So we are going to work ways in for us to be able to ask questions, uh, not necessarily today. So if you type something on there today, um, I'm not going to be able to respond to it immediately. For the people that are in the room though, here's what they know. From the first 15 minutes, from 6.15 to 6.30, we've actually already been going for 15 minutes, but not on the subject. I'm giving them the opportunity to ask questions before you guys join us at 6.30 and as people still filter into the room. So we're going to do that every week. uh, And uh, they're going to be able to ask questions in here before you guys come on. But we're going to work on some ways to be able to make this a little more interactive if you would like that. And so we're, we're, we're working on it. Today's going to be a lot of me talking, which by the way is why we're only doing uh, about an hour, uh, because you can, you can only stand to listen to me talk for so long, all right? And there's only so much information you can digest uh, right off the bat, and um, particularly the fact that I'm looking out here. I know some of you are retired, so you were looking forward. Like, this was what you had to do today. Uh, but a number of you, you came here directly from work. And so you've already put in eight or ten hours of uh, thinking, and now I'm going to ask you to do a little bit more. Uh, and so I'm going to try to keep this um, to, uh, to under an hour just for, for our ability to be able to process and uh, the the lack of interaction that we're going to be able to have just because of the nature of being online and in person and then spread out here uh, in the room. So let me just introduce this semester. So we're going to run from today uh, through the week before Thanksgiving. And uh, we'll do every Wednesday night, Lord willing, if, uh, even if we were to, for whatever reason, have to shut down the ability to be in person on Wednesday, I imagine I would just keep teaching this uh, like we did on Sunday mornings, and you would be able to join us live online. So I have every intention of teaching this uh, from now through uh, Thanksgiving with, uh, th- through this subject, and this is how we approach the Scripture And and there's varying ways that we approach the Scripture, and I'm going to address all of those over the course of the next, really, two and a half months as we talk about this. I think it's 10 weeks uh, that we're going to be talking about this together. So we're going to talk about how we read the Scripture. Uh, We're going to talk about how we study the Scripture, which I think those may be two different things, right? You probably read the scripture every day, but you may not necessarily study the scripture every day, and and possibly some of you never really study the scripture. You just give yourself to reading the scriptures, uh, 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, hopefully something like that, Um, but you, you don't really study it, and I'll explain what I mean when I get to that section in a few weeks, what we really mean when we think about studying the scripture. Um, but then also how we should hear the scripture. So by the end of this, what I hope is you're not only going to be better students, personal students of uh, God's word, which is one of our core values here is that, uh, that each individual member will be someone who uh, reads and applies God's word for themselves, that we think that's important, but we also think that it's important uh, that we have expositional preaching in our corporate worship and uh, the systematic teaching of God's word in our small groups. And so I want to make you better hearers of God's word when, we, when I preach and when your small group leader teaches. So towards the end, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit on how I prepare sermons, and how you then, if you know some of my preparation process, it'll help you know what to listen for, which also is going to be how your small group leaders prepare their lessons and how those, things, how those are arranged for them in the material, but also how they prepare and get themselves ready so that when you're discussing it in small groups. So what I hope is we're all going to become better readers of the text, uh, better students of the text, but also better receivers of the text as we... Uh, as we sit under the preaching of God's word or sit under the systematic teaching of God's word and really interaction of that in small groups, uh, whether it's in person uh, or online. But, and this this was a but that some of you know was coming because you've been coming to these Wednesday night sessions that I've taught now for a long time. We have multiple new people in here, and I'm sure we have some joining us online. So let me just address a quip really quick because we've not had a quip since March, and I have missed it greatly. Uh, it, it, every Wednesday night I've been at home thinking, this is not where I'm supposed to be right now. <laughs> I'm just so used to being here and, and so used to teaching. So, so normally the way that we handle a is that a couple of times a year for, for, uh, somewhere between six to 10 weeks, uh, twice a year, I'll teach everybody. And I pick a subject and I'll teach on that subject. And then about twice a year, normally for around eight or 10 weeks, um, we will have, um, we 'll have multiple groups that you 'll choose from, so we 'll have a study on prayer or a study on worship or a study on um, I always teach a study on doctrine and that 's the way I, I progress through a bible doctrine's book that we sell in our equip center and so you have these options to to choose and so it 's typically in the spring and fall you you choose and then the in the winter and summer we'll we 'll Uh, we'll have everybody together in the fellowship hall. So it it kind of varies. But when I teach everybody, the first lesson is always somewhat of a history lesson on the subject that I'm going to teach. And some of you probably expected that that was what today was going to be. And you're glad that you are here because you were looking forward to that. And others of you are like, man, I should have skipped and waited for week two. Because I realize some of you lean in a little more on history than other people do. Today is not going to be all history. I'm not going to do for the next, you know, 53 minutes, deal with the history of the Bible. But I am going to deal with some of the history of the Bible. But I'm also going to answer the question that, that Chris O'Neill ans, asked kind of in our pre-service, uh, which is how do you choose a good Bible translation? So I'm going to talk about how we got the Bible today. Right? That's the history lesson we're going to deal with. How did we get from um, the ancients' oral tradition of Scripture, which is how the Scriptures existed um, during the time period of um, the the the, old, the oldest portions of the Old Testament? Uh, through the writing down of the scriptures into compiling the New Testament up through uh, the translations that we have today. So that's kind of what I want to uh, address. And then in the, in the couple of weeks following this, because I'm going to follow the same pattern that I always follow, is we're going to kind of deal with some history and then we're going to deal with some doctrine and then we're going to deal with some practice. All right. So today's history, a couple of weeks on some doctrine. And then several weeks on, okay, how do we take all of that and put it into practice, becoming good students and good hearers and good readers of the Word? All right? Um, Typically, I provide uh, handouts and I provide syllabuses when we start this. Uh, We're trying to touch less stuff. And so I didn't print things. If there's just this great uprising for me to print off a handout, you could, but for those of you that know, my, my handouts are normally fairly limited to just kind of some main points and then everybody fills in. So you could probably guess this and if you want to know where I am because I've, you know, I've got all these notes here, I'm happy to share any of that stuff with you. So let's think first of the canon of scripture, answering this question, what belongs in the Bible and what does not belong? For those of you that have been through my courses on Bible doctrine, if you were in the second week of um, the doctrine of the Bible in the Bible doctrine class, then some of this is going to sound familiar to you because it's just the same, a lot of it's the same stuff. Okay? But it's always good to have a refresher, and I've got a few in, few interesting new things in here as well. So, as you know, the Bible's divided into two parts the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's helpful to think about those things separately because they existed separately. Um, they're coming together, uh, the process of them coming together was different, and so you can't just say, well, how did we get the Bible? It's much more effective to say, how did we get the Old Testament versus how did we get uh, the New Testament? So we're going to start with the Old Testament because it comes first and it's the oldest, right? There are 39 books that uh, in our modern Bibles that consist of the Old Testament. That's not always been the case. It usually was uh, less than that. The Hebrew Bible, for instance, has less than that because some of the books that we have in our Bible were were, were one. For instance, what we would consider First and Second Kings was actually just one book. Okay, uh, what we consider the 12 Minor Prophets was just the prophets. It was just those books we're, were all together, all right? Um, and, and and so we've divided it out. Makes it makes it a little bit easier. Um, really, the division of it is not what matters so much. But how did we get that? How did we go from ancient people? When I say ancient people, uh, I mean people predating um, the Phoenician alphabet that we're used to, which would have been developed, uh, what, 1300 BC, something like that, right? How did we go from, uh, uh, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphs to where, where you have Moses and the people of God in captivity, right, or in slavery to, to taking, taking uh, the land of Canaan and the promised land and then beginning to write things down. So how, how did that transition? Well, I think it's helpful to ask this question. What was the first scripture ever written? Now, if you've taken my Bible doctrines class, don't answer that because you know the answer. Does anybody know What was the first scripture ever written? Don't say Genesis. The Ten Commandments, that's right. The first scripture to ever be written down was not written down by man. It was written down by the hand of God, that God called Moses to the top of the mountain. And what does God do? God writes for him scripture. And the the writing of the Ten Commandments, actually, actually separate from this, was text a question from somebody uh, just yesterday asking what language God uh, inscribed the Ten Commandments in. And I thought, that's a really good question, because I don't know, because what we know to be true about Hebrew and the development of the Hebrew language is that it was in its very, very early stages, at least during the time of Moses, if not if not maybe one or 200 years too early um, in in far as the development of of the Hebrew language that the Proto-Hebrew, which became biblical Hebrew, ancient Hebrew that we think of uh, as being what most of the Old Testament was written in. So we don't really know what God chose to write it in. We just know that God wrote it. And so God writes the Ten Commandments and then God inspires through the work of the Holy Spirit working in Moses to begin the process of recording in some way the oral history of God's people that becomes the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, Moses passes and he kind of passes the mantle on to Joshua, who Joshua then, then begins to write as well, probably writes uh, at least the end of the book of Deuteronomy, possibly contributing some additional uh, work. Most of this still being communicated orally, uh, at least for a couple of hundred years, most likely, being communicated primarily orally. Doesn't mean none of it was written down, uh, but but that most of it was from person to person communicated orally. Remember, we're still very much dealing with a um, a an oral based culture where uh, the ability to read was not even something that people were even thinking about as being necessary until we get to um, about a thousand BC when, when we would date David and then Solomon and then the Kings of Israel. And what we begin to see happen is Kings and prophets primarily become the authors of uh, the old Testament that either kings were writing down what was happening during their time, or in most cases, scribes were writing down what was happening, or prophets, or the scribes of prophets were writing down what the prophets were saying, all right? And so we, we get this, this period of, um, of as much as 2,000 years, if we're going to count the oral part, much more than that, far far more than that, uh, likely of uh of tradition handed down from one gen- carefully handed down from one generation to the next uh put into language that the people could read which was hebrew um recording uh, really three things the first five books of the bible uh the are four things the first five books of the bible uh the the uh history which were things like first and second kings first and second chronicles um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah would be the end of the, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Esther being the end of the history. Uh, the poetry section, which would be Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the prophets. And those four sections kind of existed independent of one another, and they, they grew in size as, as varying things happened until about the year 435 B.C., And in uh, right around 435 and don't, I mean, maybe it was 436. Okay. But right around that time, about 400 years before Jesus is when we really see the end of the final two sections, which was the history section and the prophecy section. Those both close at the same time. So, um, after the exile of God's people in Babylon, and then, um, they, they returned during the uh, during the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we get the recording, the historic recording of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We also get the writing of the book of Esther. And then we get the writing of a couple of the final prophets that existed during that time with the last being the last book of the prophets in the old Testament, which is Malachi. But all of that happening about 400, 430 years, uh, before Jesus it's not that people no longer wrote anything. And we're gonna talk about some of the things that were written during what we're known as the intertestamental period time. So it's not that nobody wrote anything, um, but the Hebrews stopped considering anything written to be important, really important uh, from from that time. There's even some some first century um, rabbinic teaching from the time of Jesus that talk about the removal of the Holy Spirit from God's people uh, after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi uh, were were working uh, to to reestablish God's people uh, in. Uh, in the Promised Land, first-century historians. Um, the most famous first-century Jewish historian was a man named Josephus. Josephus tells us a lot about uh, a lot about what Jewish culture was like during the time of Roman rule, during the time of Jesus. He even talks about Jesus and his followers briefly in some of his writings, and he talks about a broken line of prophetic succession. That that there was this constant handing down of the mantle of prophet. Uh, And it's a little messy as we look at it in scripture, but there's this kind of constant handing down of uh, prophetic secession all the way from Moses down through the minor prophets that existed before uh, the Babylonian exile and after the Babylonian exile. But then there's this break where we don't see that uh, any longer. And so you have both the historical idea that 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 there's no longer scripture being written, being handed down. You have the rabbinic teaching that talks about the departure of the Holy Spirit, that that that, uh, mantle is not sitting on anyone uh, anymore. And so the, the Jews, not the church, the Jews, closed their canon. So the Hebrew Bible that we have, the Hebrew Bible that Jews would use today and have used for the last 2,000 years, is the same books of the Bible that we have in our Protestant English Bibles today, all right? So they're the same books. Now, they're organized differently. Some of them are combined into one book, but they're the same books, all right? So what we have in our English Bibles today is a translation of the Hebrew text. So we go all the way back to the Hebrew text, The same Bible that uh, Jews are using, uh, the Jews were using in Jesus' day and Jews are using today, and that's what we used. Jesus and the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament. You want to take a guess? How many times does Jesus and and the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament? Directly quote the Old Testament? Just a guess. Nobody? 295 times. Now, that's not, that doesn't count the allusions to the Old Testament. There's almost that many allusions to the Old Testament just in the book of Revelation. But just direct quotes of the Old Testament, 295 direct quotes from the Old Testament, none of them quote anything that was written during the intertestamental period time. There are a few allusions to some things that were written during the intertestamental period of time, but no direct quotes. So Jesus and the New Testament, this is why, why would Christians consider the Old Testament to be the Bible? That's the question that we really ought to ask. Why don't we just say, start with Matthew and go from there? The rest of it isn't important. It's because Jesus and the apostles really thought it was important. They thought it was so important that they quoted it 295 times. So th- th- this, is, this is scripture for us because it was scripture for them. I also think this is fairly interesting. We see Jesus um, in conflict with uh, multiple groups of people, uh, primarily the Pharisees during his time in Galilee, uh, the Sadducees during his time in Jerusalem, and always this group that was kind of beside those people, which were the scribes. Right, so you see the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees at varying times during the life and ministry of Jesus. Hit conflict with them. Do you know one thing? They were never in conflict over. They were never in conflict over, at least in scripture and in, in the four gospel accounts that tell us the life of Jesus, we have no recorded event that they were ever in conflict over what belonged in the Bible. They were in conflict over how to interpret it all the time, right? You heard it said, I tell you right? You teach this, but I'm telling you this, you've misinterpreted it, right? Jesus says that all the time, but never once did Jesus say, at least recorded for us, never once did Jesus say that y'all are saying that scripture, but it's not, or this is scripture. Y'all are saying it's not scripture, but it really is. So there was, there was this, um, agreement with people that never agreed on anything. There was this agreement on what belonged in the Hebrew Bible. Right? So the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that was actually translated, that was in Hebrew and used during the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, ends with Malachi, it ends with Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther uh, are in late 400 BC. Now, there was another Bible, uh, Old Testament Bible, in very common use in Jesus' day. It was known as the Septuagint, um, which means the seventy. Um, attributed to 70 scholars who translated, and there's a lot of stories that, that are behind that. Um, but there, the, the, this was also called the Greek Old Testament, okay? Um, and it it was translated. Different parts of it were translated at different times. Uh, let's just say within the two to three hundred year period leading up to Jesus. So during the intertestamental period time, the Hebrew Bible is translated into the into the Greek language, which more people could read. Um, uh, Hebrew, uh, Jewish converts could read it. People that grew up outside of Israel who maybe not could read uh, Hebrew would be able to read it. And so that was why they translated it. And they included some of the intertestamental period books in that. So there were two Bibles primarily being used during that time. One, it was Hebrew, which, which ends where our Old Testament ends. Uh, one in Greek, which did not. Uh, and it contains those. Um, After the period of Jesus, after the fall of Jerusalem and the final dispersion of Israel, um, that Bible quickly falls out of use and the Jewish people return uh, nearly exclusively to the use of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so what they prize as the Old Testament is what we prize as the Old Testament. But that leaves us with that question, what about those books that were written? Because you've, You've probably had this question before. Aren't there some books in the Bible that Catholics use or Eastern Orthodox people use um, that we don't use? And there are. Those books are known as the Apocrypha, which means things that are hidden. Usually, depends on which church you're talking about. Uh, but usually there's 15 of them. Sometimes they combine some books together uh, between the Orthodox, um, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the the Roman Catholics. There's one missing here or there. But in general, there's 15 books. These were not included in the Hebrew Bible. They were included in the Septuagint. The reason that they became very popular um, was uh, for the Catholic Church was the um, the Greek, New, the Greek Old Testament was translated in 400 AD um, it, by a guy named Jerome into what's known as the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate included those books, but it did not include them as, as what's known as canon. It did not include them as Bible. It included them in its own section, and that section was called um, F- Books of the Church. When you get to the Reformation 500 years ago in Martin Luther, Martin Luther says, those books of the church, I'm going to quote them here, but it's not going to be exact, uh, that they are helpful, useful, but not scripture, <laughs> all right? And there are multiple reasons, I'm not going to go into all of them here, there are multiple reasons that we would say uh, that, they are, that they are not scripture um, There's certainly some very questionable sources, questionable dates, questionable content uh, within some of these things. However, in 1546 at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church, the more modern version of the Catholic Church, um, named these books Scripture in response to Martin Luther's Reformation. So in in response to Protestants saying, we're going to stick to the Hebrew Bible The Catholics said, we're going to include these 15 books of the Apocrypha, which they had never done before. They had always just been books for the church, never been considered scripture. Um, In 1546, uh, the Catholic church declared them to be uh, canonical. They they called them deuterocanonical uh, books, meaning that these are scriptural books. We don't use them, Uh, They were never considered scripture by Jesus. Jesus would have considered the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament to be scripture. None of the New Testament authors ever directly quote from them. them. Um, And they contain teachings that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. They contain teachings that are inconsistent with the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so uh, they, they cause more trouble than they are worth. And so we don't, uh, listen to them. There are other books that were also written during that intertestamental period. Actually, one of those books, not considered apocryphal, was quoted uh, in the New Testament. The only place that we see something from the intertestamental period directly quoted is in the book of Jude twice. Uh, well, once he quotes, once he alludes to um, something that was written in the uh, pseudobiographical work known as the book of Enoch. Which Enoch certainly didn't write, because Enoch existed before the flood. It was written about 200 years before Jesus. Um, it was v- widely popular Jewish reading of the day, uh, and and Jude, the brother of Jesus, in that short little New Testament book, uh, references it. Um, but that doesn't make it scripture. He was just referencing something that was widely popular of the day. So you say, how did we get the Hebrew Old Testament? We listened to the Hebrews which is probably the best thing you can do, right? We believe the Jews that they said, this is our Bible and we agreed with them. And so what we do now is we don't go back to the Latin Vulgate and translate into English. We don't go back to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint and translate it into English. We go back to the original Hebrew as best we can, ancient Hebrew manuscripts, which were maintained by the Hebrew people, painstakingly maintained by Hebrew scribes. That's what those people were in Jesus's day. Painstakingly maintaining that the copies of that Bible, and that is what is translated into our modern English translations today. Is we 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 skip the Latin, we skip the Greek, we go all the way back to the Hebrew. Because who better to trust for what was in the Hebrew Bible than the Hebrews? Right? All right, I'm going to try something. Do you, anybody? Did I lose? Do you have a question? Just something quick before I move to the New Testament. If you say, I'm never coming back to this, come back next week. There'll be no history. Okay. <laughs> but I like doing this. I think this is helpful. I, some of you love this. I mean, some of you just eat this up, which is why I do it every time. Linda. Linda's back there just writing stuff as fast as she can. Right? All right, so let's move to the New Testament. The New Testament um, is the 27 books from Matthew to Revelation. Revelation. Uh, the first, the first four dealing with uh, the life of Jesus. The first three of those being the synoptic gospels, um, which means they sh- they have a whole lot of they all have a whole lot in common. Uh, likely with uh, Mark being written first, and then Matthew and Luke using Mark as a uh, as a possible source. Uh, there's some scholars, many scholars actually believe there's a, there was a, a, even a fifth gospel that predates Mark that they all three uh, relied upon. And then John writing uh, a different type of gospel with a different message, but all four really t- telling us the same thing about the life and death uh, of Jesus. And then the book of Acts telling us the, the acts of the apostles, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit um, from Pentecost through the spread of the gospel to three different continents. Uh, and then the writing of the apostles to the church um, really categorized in two uh, parts. Uh, one, the writings of Paul, and one, the writings of everyone else. And the writings of Paul divided into two parts, the writings to the church and the writings to pastors. So, um, the, you know, Romans, Ephesians, all of those being writings to churches. And then 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, being uh, pastoral epistles, and then Philemon's kind of the one that stands on its own. He just wrote it to a guy. Um, and then you have uh, the uh, the other books that were written by James and Jude and John, uh, and then you have Revelation, which kind of stands on its own, even though it is addressed to churches uh, as well. They These claim... Um, These either claim uh, what's known as apostolic authority, which means they were either written by apostles or they were written by someone uh, close to apostles. And Jesus promises uh, that this will happen. I want to read some uh, during this section from the scriptures. So in John chapter 14, in a couple of places in John kind of help us see, because we have to ask this question, like what gives them the right to do this, right? Why does this group of people think that, If the Hebrews had closed, if the Jews had closed the Hebrew Bible, what makes them think they can write a New Testament, a new section to the Bible? Well, there's a couple of things in John that kind of allude to this. John 14, 26, uh, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. He says, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. So Jesus tells them one thing here. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to help you to remember the things that I've told you right? So it's not just you're going to be on your own, but there's going to be divine authority that's going to help you uh, to remember these things. Then we skip, this is in the same speech here into John 16. Um, We read, starting in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, so that same helper, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, right? He will glorify me, for he will take Uh, what is mine, and declare it to you. So we, we have Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit's going to help the apostles do two things. Remember that which Jesus told them and tell them new things that they and by extension, we, the church, would need to know. So it's not that these men had authority on their own to write scripture. They have authority because they were given a special Mantle by the Holy Spirit to do so, that the Holy Spirit was going to empower their memory, and the Holy Spirit was going to inspire their pen in their writings, which is why the, the which is why when we get to the end of this, we talk about the closing of the Holy, the closing of the New Testament. These guys aren't on Earth anymore, so this was a very limited time, right? It's a very limited time that Jesus is talking. The, the people that Jesus is talking to here are going to be alive, so all of the New Testament needed to be written during the lifespan of those people. The apostles then claimed this authority, um, so the apostles end up being the 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 disciples who are with Jesus, the, the 11, not counting Judas, um, Matthias, who they add. And then there are a few others who rise to the level of, the, of apostle, the apostle Paul becoming one of them. And he considers himself to be the least of, right? Um, but but he says in, at the end of 1 Corinthians, we am going to read it, but he says that in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, you, you need to consider my words the same as scripture, right? That, that what I'm telling you, if you're, if you're spiritual, any kind of spiritual, you're going to consider what I'm telling you to be uh, of equal weight of, of scripture. Then the New Testament does this. For instance, in Second Peter 3, Peter writing to the churches uh, in modern day Turkey tells them, Paul's written to you and Paul's letter is, has, he says it like this, says, it has easy things to believe, and it has, or easy things to understand, and it has hard things to understand, just like the rest of Scripture. Now, he, delve into what Peter's saying there. What Peter's saying is, uh, what Paul is writing is just like the rest of Scripture, right? Now, what would Peter consider to be Scripture? Peter would have considered the Old Testament to be Scripture. That's what he was uh, referencing, right? So he's saying what Paul is writing to you, the letters that we have in the New Testament, a disciple of Jesus is saying is on equal footing as the rest of scripture. Then I think one of the most interesting places is in 1 Timothy 5. Now in 1 Timothy 5, he's, uh, Paul is writing about elders. He's writing about what we call vocational and non-vocational elders. It's the one place in scripture that directly addresses, there's other places in scripture that allude to this idea, but there's one place in scripture that directly addresses the idea that some elders are going to be paid and some of them aren't. But to make that point, um, let, let, let's listen to how Paul makes that point and then we're going to make this, we're going to help us let it see some. So in 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 17, let the elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Then we might say, Well, that's really neat, right? He's, he's establishing something for the church that there would be men who would spiritually guide the church, and some of them, particularly those who give themselves to full time teaching and preaching, would be paid to do so, and that others would have you know, their source of income from outside the church. That's why we practice that. Here is based off of the teaching of this verse. But Paul does something there that's really unique. He quotes two scriptures. Now remember I told you that there were like almost 300 occasions of the Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament. Well, this is one of them, right? Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 24 verse 4 here. You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. But then he quotes the laborer deserves his wages. But the laborer deserves his wages is not in the Old Testament. The quote, the laborer deserves his wages is from Luke 10 verse 7. So we have an instance in the New Testament where the New Testament quotes Old Testament and quotes the New Testament and calls them what? Scripture. So here we we see Peter writing and saying Paul's words are Scripture. We have Paul writing saying this is Scripture and this is Scripture. We have Paul saying his own words need to be considered as Scripture. So we have this We have this authority given by Jesus to the apostles as, as this special inspiration of the Holy Spirit comes upon them to remember his teachings and to write new teachings for the church. So the majority of the books in the new Testament are directly authored by, um, by apostles, uh, Matthew, John, uh, Romans through Philemon. So all the letters of uh, Paul, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, Second, 3 John, Revelation are all apostles. There are a few, a handful who, which are not directly called apostles in the scripture. Um, Mark being one of them, but Mark, the book of Acts tells us has very close ties with Peter. So what Mark is writing in what is very likely the first gospel is actually the story that Peter is recounting to him. All right. So you could call the gospel of Mark the gospel of Peter, because that's where Mark heard it. Mark got it from Peter, and um, he wrote it down. Luke and, and the Acts of the Apostles, Luke traveled extensively with Paul. So you have this direct connection. Jude was a brother of Jesus and of James. The only book in the New Testament that does not have an attributed author is the book of Hebrews, um, probably half of New Testament scholars, particularly old, ancient New Testament scholars, attribute the authorship of Hebrews to Paul, which is how it made it into the Bible in the first place. Uh, But even if it didn't, uh, it's still obvious. You read the book of Hebrews. This is what I tell people. And they're like, well, if we don't know the author, how can we know that the book of Hebrews is the Bible? And we say, read the book of Hebrews and tell me that's not the Bible right? And it's just, it, it carries the power of Scripture with it. Whether Paul wrote it, someone else connected to Paul, uh, possibly, uh, maybe even Luke himself, whoever it was, had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and, and knew how to make this connection to what was happening through the life of Jesus uh, in a way that uh, we would be missing something if we didn't have the New Testament book of of. Uh, Hebrews, even though it is the only book that we don't have um, an, an author for. So why these 27 books? Because there are other ones, right? Why these? Why did we settle here? Well, first is they were why These were the 27 books that were widely used by the early church. So we have writings from um, people who were alive or who were called early church fathers who were alive in the late first century, who maybe even overlapped with like the apostle John, who would have been the last of the apostles to die um, through the early to mid second century. And even into the late second and early third century, these early church fathers, before there was this great organized church, you had, you had all of these pockets and you had these guys, they continued to write, but you know what they started doing? They're, they started, there started being this difference, where the authors of the New Testament in their writings were quoting the Old Testament. The early church fathers, you know what they were doing? They were quoting the New Testament. They were quoting the writings of Paul and of Peter and of the Gospels. And so we have writings from as early as like 135 AD that are not biblical writing, but were church writings that show extensive quotes from the Bible. So they were widely in use by the early church. Doesn't mean that every church had a copy of it. Remember, the church is on three continents, and these books are being spread. So you start seeing in the second and third century churches compiling lists of the New Testament books. And instead of having 27, some of them have 19, and some of them have 21 and some of them have 23. It starts growing and growing and growing, but they had most of them, right? But sometimes it would be, it's just geography, right? They're thousands of miles away from where another book is, and so they didn't have that book. They weren't influenced by it, but it takes it uh, a little while, um, up until uh, 367 AD is when we get our first list that contained the 27 and only the 27 books of the new Testament. So they were widely in use. That's one of the reasons that we accept these as books of the new Testament. They do not contradict themselves or other teachings in the Bible. You may say, wait, don't people say all the time that the Bible contradicts itself? Yes. It's because they don't understand the Bible, right? The Bible doesn't contradict itself. You have to understand the story that the Bible is telling, which by the way, is one of the things that I'm going to do in here. um, when we get later in the semester is I'm going to tell the whole story of the Bible in one sitting. Cause I think if we know the whole story of the Bible, this redemptive story of the Bible, it helps you to know what the Bible's actually about instead of just picking this verse and saying, Oh, this verse is about this. No, that verse contributes to the whole story of the Bible. Right? So none of these books, the 27 books of the new Testament contradict the whole story of the Bible. While some of the things that were left out would contradict that, that whole story. Um, And they were written in the time of those who could dispute it, right? So they were all written in the first century when at least some of the disciples were still alive, those who Jesus had spoken to and lived with and could have said, wait, it did not happen that way. That's that's not where it happened. It, It happened during the day where first century Jews could have said, wait, Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. Look, here's the tomb. Here's the body, right? They were unable to do that. So all of this were written during the period of time when eyewitnesses to these accounts could have refuted the accounts had they had the evidence to do so. So we close the canon once those eyewitnesses are all dead, once those who Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will bring to memory these things of and teach new things to, uh, we close uh, the New Testament. But in the mid-300s AD is when we start first getting these uh, lists of uh, we start getting this complete list. So you say, wow, man, it took 300 years. It took 300 years to get the 27. But you, know, you have to remember, even in the 2nd century and in the 3rd century, up through the mid-4th century, which is when 367 AD is, th- the list that we did have included most. But there's, they don't have the technology that we have. They don't have the travel that we have. It just takes a long time for these things uh, to circulate. Officially, it was at the very end of the fourth century, in 937 AD, it was known as the Third Synod, uh, Third Synod of Carthage, uh, where the Western Church, uh, which is the forerunner for, we're, we're getting towards the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church at this point, but where the church, they, they would have these councils and they would send representatives from all of these churches together. Um, following the pattern that we see with the Jerusalem council that takes place actually in the book of Acts, they, they send these people together and they vote and they say, these are the books. And they, they agreed on those 27 books uh, with the last one, Revelation 22, ending with a warning not to add anything to these words. Uh, the death of John being the last of the disciples closes um, the canon of the New Testament which then leads us to what's known as the New Testament Apocrypha, sometimes known as the Gnostic Gospels. If you watch the History Channel, it's called the Lost Books of the Bible. And they try to make it sound like these people got in this room and conspired to keep these stories down, and they really should be included, but they shouldn't. And it's really not even... Folks, it's not even close, all right? it's It's not like some of these were were, you know, on most of the lists, but somehow somebody uh, shot these things down. First thing you need to know, none of those books, none of this, this that's known as the Gnostic Gospels or the New Testament Apocrypha um, was written in the first century. None of it. It's all pseudobiographical, meaning it claims somebody else wrote it, but they didn't. Uh, in some cases, they wrote it in a language that these people didn't even speak. Okay, it it used words that didn't exist back then. I mean, these these books did not exist during the time of the apostles. Uh, Most of them were discovered from the late second century uh, through four hundred or so AD. Through that time of. uh, that, the, that the council in Carthage closed the canon officially. Um, some have been discovered even recently. I mean, some, as we're continuing to, uh, archaeologists continue to discover new writings, we're, we're continuing to find things to claim to be Bible that when you look at the history of it, uh, never actually were. In just about every case, these books arose to promote a specific false doctrine. So what you have happening in the New Testament church is Um, false doctrine. They're still trying to determine doctrine and what's the right doctrine for the church. And you have multiple councils to deal with that. And the losers would all of a sudden find a new book of the Bible that supported their position all along. Look, we found it. And Paul wrote this, even though it was written in a language that Paul didn't write in. And 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 see this this proves. So for instance, like one of those books is one of the popular ones, is The Shepherd of Hermes. And it it promotes the necessity of penance that you would personally pay for, right, your your sin. And there were people that believed that and so they write write this. There's there's wild accusation there's wild writings about the the childhood of Jesus, and, and things about Mary Magdalene, and these are the things that, that people on TV want to make TV shows about, and it's all garbage. There's nothing there, all right? The, the church has, has agreed upon the, the, the closed canon of Scripture uh, officially for 1,600 years, unofficially outside of some debate over things like the book of James, the book of Jude, the book of Hebrews, and the book of Revelation, Uh, Those were the last four to make it in. Outside of those four, the the canon's been closed since since almost the death of John, all right? And it's really not been debated. It doesn't matter what people want to tell you, all right? So then, we have the closed Old Testament. We have the closed New Testament. How do we get this, though? Because it wasn't written in the king's English, was it? it it, um, it was written primarily in Hebrew, right, the Old Testament. It was written in Greek, the New Testament, with a little bit of Aramaic spattered into uh, the oldest parts of the Old Testament and some sayings in the New Testament. So how do we get uh, the Bibles that we have? Well, I just want to talk about the process by which um, this is known as textual criticism. And sometimes textual criticism is thought of as a bad thing. It's really not, as long as we're using it in a a right way. Um, But it's this idea that, that we have all of these manuscripts that are out there that have existed for varying periods of time. Here's what we don't have, all right? We don't have a letter of Ephesians, for instance, written in Paul's hand, signed at the bottom, Apostle Paul, right? And we go, Paul wrote this from prison in Rome, right? We don't have that. We have no original um, Old Testament or New Testament writing. We still have very, very ancient ones, though, Um, more so than any ancient work of literature, and it's not even close. For the New Testament, for instance, we have over 5,000 partial or full greek manuscripts that would be considered ancient meaning they date back the earliest date back dates back to 132 135 something like that ad so you're talking about one to two generations removed from the original manuscripts when we we have a partial manuscript of one dating back that early to the late first, second, and third century, translated in Greek, where we can find one that was that was uh, written in Greek, we can find one that was transcribed in this on this date, one that was transcribed on this date we can compare them and they 're the same thing all right so so these things are uh, we have five thousand if you compare that to uh, Homer's Iliad, for instance. It used to be that there were only like 675 uh, partial or full uh, manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, uh, the, the earliest of which dating back to about 400 years after uh, he created that, that account. Um, it's now something like 1,250 because they've discovered more. Again, archaeologists continue to discover these things, but folks, it's nowhere close. The Bible has more ancient manuscripts than anything else, any other ancient work. If you count other manuscripts that were trans, early translations, so translated into um, Coptic, into Syriac, into uh, Egyptian, they're translated into these other languages that still date back to the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century, you're talking about 25,000 ancient manuscripts. And we can compare one language to another language, and we see all they did was they just translated, Right? Uh, to the point where we are like definitively sure that what we have in the New Testament is what was written, and it depends on who you read, anywhere from 97 to 99% of the time. Meaning 97 to 99 words out of 100 in the New Testament that we have in the English Bible, that we translate, well, that we have in the Greek New Testament that we're translating the Bible from are the words that were written. For the Old Testament, it's about nine out of 10, okay? So the Old Testament, being older, has a little more variance when we discovered the Dead Sea. But for instance, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, um, the, they, they find an entire copy of, of Isaiah, right? And they compare this entire copy of Isaiah to the copy of Isaiah we have today, and it's like three words in that entire book were different, right? So th- this thing has been maintained um, very, very faithfully, I believe, by the power of God, uh, to the point where we can with certainty say what we have is the old and is the new testament and there are just a few places for instance uh the story of the woman caught in adultery uh the end of the book of mark a few verses in a few of the epistles and a couple other places sometimes just a word or a letter even um that wasn't in one manuscript that is in another manuscript and we have plausible explanations for why those things exist or don't exist in one place and do exist in another place but none of them change any primary teaching of the Bible. So if you say, well, I don't think, you know, the the most ancient manuscripts, for instance, don't have the final section of the book of Mark, but the final section of the book of Mark doesn't change anything about what's happening in the book of Mark. All right. And so even if you say, I don't think that's belongs in the Bible, it really doesn't change anything about the truth of the scripture. So this has been maintained by the church in multiple languages um, up through the time of the printing press, painstakingly so, and, and we've continued from the time of the printing press in the 1500s through uh, the um, translation of the King James Bible in 1611, we've continued to add uh, hundreds of new manuscripts through work of archaeologists and, and new discoveries uh, to, to, to even shore up even more so what we know. So that's how it's been maintained. Now the question is, how do we get this, right? How do we get from that to this? Well, it's probably the hardest thing in Christianity. I have great respect for these people. We met some people in, uh, on one of my trips to um, West Africa, we met some people that lived in a West African village. They've lived there for years and they've been translating the Bible into that that, uh, language. There's this little micro people group that live in one little spot and um, they they were on their third book of the Bible. They've been there for years. They were on their third book of the Bible. And this is hard work. Language is hard. This is why most Americans only speak one language, because we're lazy and language is hard, all right? It's just, it's really, really difficult. And language is dynamic. It's always changing. Language is not static. Um, Language is always changing. And the meanings of words is, is constantly changing. And so um, this is probably the hardest thing to do is to translate from an ancient language uh, with confidence into, uh, into a modern language, which is why we rely on very smart people in, in large groups. So most of our English Bibles that we have today were translated by committee. They had very smart people, in some cases over 100, um, brilliant men and women, Greek scholars, New Testament scholars, Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars come together and debate these things sometimes for years, and then they wrote it, and then they come back together and they 're like all right here's on further consideration, we need to switch this word and on, you know we need to think about it like this right so we it's just it's a constant process there is no perfect there's no such thing as a perfect translation from one language to another there just is It's just the nature of languages. There's there's no direct correlation between from one language to another, from one word to to another word. Uh, An English word may be ninety nine percent of what a French word is, but that French word's going to have one little piece that may mean something different to a native French speaker than it would an English speaker. And the further away the languages get on the language tree, even the harder it is. All right. So to go from English to Chinese, right, is harder than English to French because they're much they're much closer together. So there's no perfect one-to-one translation. So when Bible translators sit down and they're going to look at the Hebrew, and they're going to look at the Greek, and they're going to translate into English, the first conversation they have is what type of translation are we looking for? There are three primary types of translation. One uh, is known as a formal equivalent, which means they are looking at the grammar and the syntax, um, meaning the structure uh, so they're not just looking at what the words mean, but they're actually at the actual structure of the sentence. They're like, "Okay, this word is here. Boom, I'm putting this word here. Now You, you can't do that all the time or it wouldn't make any sense in English uh, because of the, the syntax of Hebrew and Greek is different than in English. But they try to remain as close to that as you can. Those are called formal equivalents. The, uh, the, the second is known as functional equivalent, which means that they're, they're not translating word for word so much as they're translating thought for thought. They're taking these two or three words or they're taking this sentence and they're saying this is what that sentence means, this is what this sentence is saying. They're getting most of the words exact, but they're, they're, will, they're more willing to move a phrase or a clause to the beginning or the end. Um, because it's going to make more sense to an English speaker um, and and communicate more of what the original author intended. The third is a paraphrase. This is adding words or deleting words and phrases that have no equivalent whatsoever in the original, but just really trying to speak only to intent, not to the actual actual words of the author. So just quickly, because I'm almost out of time. That's not the Bible. A, a paraphrase is not the Bible. It's not to say paraphrases aren't useful. Uh, Bible's like the message, right? That's, a, that's the most common paraphrase in, in modern English. I have a copy of it in my office. I think there's times that it's useful, but folks, that's not the Bible, right? That's one guy, Eugene Peterson, telling you what the Bible meant to him, All right. And he did a pretty good job in most places, but it's still not the Bible. The other two are, are on a range, No Bible is fully one or the other. They're all on this sliding scale and, and really what you have to look for when you're looking for a Bible, because we want you to choose a Bible, right, that you can understand and it's going to be helpful to you, 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 have to, you have to look at that and figure out what makes the best sense for your mind, because your mind works differently than, than mine does, all right? So in major English translations, we're looking, or in English translations, we're looking for something that's reliable, meaning it's telling us what the actual Bible, the Greek and Hebrew Bible said, it's readable, which means it's using words that we understand because to use words that we don't understand, the Bible might as well be in French, right? And that it's theologically unbiased. We used to not have to mention that, but we have to mention it now because there are theologically biased Bibles out there now that are, um, they're neutering the Bible, right? They're taking things out of the Bible that they don't like. Uh, I guess this isn't new. Thomas Jefferson did that. You can see his Bible in the Smithsonian. He cut entire pages out of it because he didn't like miracles, and so he cut them all out. Um, that's happening on a different level today. Um, but you want a Bible that's readable. You want a Bible that is reliable. Uh, you want a Bible that, and I'm going to say this, and, and uh, King James fans don't get upset with me. You, you want a Bible that's modern. And here's why I'm going to say that language is dynamic language changes. And because language changes, um, we stop using certain words. And if the only place you see a word used in that way is in the Bible, is it really helping you very much to use that word in that way? Guys in the back, it's 729. How long is the live stream going to go? I got 15 minutes. All right. So just stick with us. I'm going to be done in five. I just want to make sure it wasn't going to cut off on them. So let me give you one example. Of, an, of a word that was used, in, and I'm not picking on the King James, okay? If, if you want to use a King James Bible, it's fine. I just want to, I'm prodding you a little bit. Um, first, we don't have an official Bible of our church. I preach from the ESV, which is the uh, extra spiritual version. It's the English standard version uh, of the Bible. It's not, it, it's not perfect. There, there are times that I'm like, eh, I, you, yeah, I look at the Greek, I look at the Hebrew, I'd have said that differently. Uh, another good translation is the uh, Christian standard Bible becoming very popular. It's actually owned by Southern Baptists, Great Commission Baptists for those that were here in the pre-session. Um, we own it. Um, I've, not, I've decided for several reasons not to switch to preaching from it, uh, but I do use it. I do use it in my own study sometime. But here, let me give you one example with the King James that, that, that to me is an issue. I think this, this stands out to people. When you get to heaven What kind of dwelling place is going to be waiting for you? Go ahead and say it. It's a mansion, right? It's not a mansion, though. The King James in John 14 tells you that Jesus is going, in my Father's house there are many what? Mansions. There are now entire, you know, gospel songs written about my mansion in heaven. This is just a great example of how language is dynamic. In 1611, when they weren't wrong in translating it that way, They did not envision this, you know, 5,000 square foot home on the water, right? That's what we envision. When you picture mansion, you picture this huge brick thing, you know, huge fields on the water. That's what you picture. That's not what they pictured in the 1600s. In the 1600s, they were still using Middle English. They were in the late period of Middle English. Um, And the word mansion in the Middle English just meant dwelling place. It came from the French word maison which just meant house, right? Which came from the Latin word, um, which came actually from the Greek word, mone, which is the word that's in the Greek New Testament in John 14, which literally just means room. That's what the word means. The word means room. So modern translations say, in my father's house, there are many rooms, and that's what, the, that's what Jesus said, okay? Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If you, if, if you wanna go to your deathbed believing that there's a mansion waiting for you in heaven, I don't think Jesus is gonna be mad at you. I'm not gonna be mad at you, it's fine. But that's one example of probably 20 that I could just give off the top of my head that, that says, hey, a, languages change, and 1611 was a long time ago. <laughs> And so to still use the words they used in 1611. You know when you read Shakespeare in high school and you're like, I don't understand what this joker's saying? That was in the same time period (laughs) that we have the King James Bible. It may be time to move. So here's what I would, if you just look. Some people love their King James because it's what they memorized in, right? Every now and then I'll quote scripture on Sunday morning as a sermon and I'll quote it in the King James because what I memorized it in as a boy. Sometimes I'll quote from the NIV because that's what I used to when I was in college and I was really getting into memorizing the Bible, right? These things stick in your head that way. So here, do what I do. Have more than one copy of the scripture. I regularly reference two, three, or four different versions, English versions of the Bible um, because I think they're, they're all going to be helpful to you. Um, but a modern translation that you can read is going to be your best bet at understanding what the Bible actually has to say. Last thing, a study Bible is helpful, but you got to know that the study notes aren't the Bible. All right. When people ask me about buying a study Bible, I do recommend the ES, it's called the ESV study Bible, not the ESV women's study Bible, not the ESV student study Bible, not the ESV fishermen study Bible. Okay. It's just called the ESV study Bible. It's a really big Bible. It never leaves my office because it's big. You don't carry that thing around. Um, but I I really like it. The NIV actually has a great study Bible too. I don't love the NIV translation of the Bible, but their study Bible is top three. And the CSB as well uh, is a new study Bible that came out and Lifeway gave me a free one and I was grateful for it. And it's in color. Uh, It's got color pictures, which I like. And um, sometimes pictures help, right? And uh, it's a good one too. But I have all three of them in my office, but y'all pay me to do this. You probably just want one because they run 50, 60 bucks but it's helpful. But what you got to know is those notes aren't the Bible. The Bible is the Bible, right? The little notes about the Bible can be exceedingly helpful, but they're helping you know what the Bible says. So you don't quote those like they're the Bible. You quote the Bible like it's the Bible. All right. So that's how we got old in New Testament. And it's how we got up through this that we're going to have uh, today. Next week, what we're going to deal with is some really like top level, because when I teach my doctrine of the Bible class, I go, I I deal with like, I do this in five weeks. I'm going to do it in one week. Some really top level stuff about doctrine of the Bible. So before we get into how to read, study, and hear the Bible, we need to think about the authority of the scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. Um, We need to think about those things. So that's our topic uh, next week. I encourage you to come with Uh, questions. If you've got questions, you could always email me. Those of you that are watching online, I'd be happy to to engage with you. People in the room, you can stay after. And again, we're going to work on ways to make this uh, a little more interactive, but I certainly hope you'll uh, be back. Thanks for joining us online. We're going to say goodbye to you guys. Can I pray? Have you already clicked the switch? I'm going to pray. Let me do that. God, thank you that we have the technology to do this. There's people watching us online from the living room's that uh, I'm grateful for a crowd in the room, too. And uh, God, would you, we thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired um, uh, godly men to to record Scripture for us over the course of time, and that you protected it so that we can know certain things about you, that we can know truth uh, and stand on that truth, as we saw last Sunday uh, in the sermon, that above all else, we can believe you. And thank you that we can believe your word that was preserved for us. I pray, God, that we will become better students of it.